Father, we again come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your presence with us this day. Lord, I pray today for your blessing on these local ministries, the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission and others that we're privileged to serve. Thank you for raising them up in our community. Would you speak to us in the ways you'd have us serve them and uh, follow you into the mission field right here at hand? Lord, speak to our hearts today as we open your word. Guide us, Lord, we ask in the name of the great shepherd who said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as Wes has mentioned, this is a day on which we emphasize local ministries. I'd like to begin by asking you to take a look at what we call our vision frame. I think of the vision frame as, as a window frame through which you look into the future and in the future we have what we call our vision 2025. Our Vision 2025 is simply a statement of what we believe the Lord would have River Oaks look like as a church in the year 2025. As you look around the frame, you see our mission statement, building followers of Jesus who are sent, sent beyond the walls of the church to reach others. And at the bottom of the frame, you see what we call our discipleship pathway. It's also in the front of your bulletin, your worship guide, if you got one of those on the way in, if you're looking at one on your phone or tablet. But notice the four steps in the discipleship pathway. Worshiping together, and that's what we're doing today. You're already doing that. Growing in a group, studies have shown repeatedly that in terms of spiritual growth, people go to another level when they do more than simply come to a worship service. They engage in some type of a small group, a journey group, a small group of, of any type. Thirdly, serving on a team. We grow as we use our gifts to serve one another. As the Apostle Peter wrote, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But then fourthly, go with the mission. Why would we say that's important to our spiritual growth? Because this is the way Jesus made disciples. Jesus called followers to come and be with him, and he taught them. And then he sent them out. And we believe people continue their spiritual growth as they embrace their identity as sent people. People whom God has sent into the world with his love and with his truth. And so as our church experiences spiritual growth through the teaching of his word, we believe increasingly that people will be sent into our community and world. Next, you'll see a statement from our Vision 2025 that reads this way. This is what we anticipate being a reality uh, a couple years from now. The people of River Oaks recognize that their own spiritual growth should overflow into God's blessing upon the surrounding community. In other words, our community should be blessed because our church exists. Care for the poor and afflicted service to the schools, and strategic church planning all reflect this overflow. While 80% of River Oaks members serve locally in some way, dozens of others have been called to missions overseas. And we're seeing that happen today, particularly with many of our youth and, and young adults. Followers of Jesus are sent people. I'd like to begin this morning in the scripture by looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, where we get a picture 
of a day in the life of Christ, a picture of Jesus' ministry. And we read this in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send, to send out laborers into his harvest. So let's consider for a moment these components of Jesus' ministry. First of all, proclaiming the gospel. That was at the heart of what he did. So we read in verse 35, he went about all the cities and villages teaching, proclaiming, preaching the gospel. The gospel, of course, is defined very simply for us in the Bible as this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus went about proclaiming. But Jesus didn't merely make converts, and neither should we. Jesus also went about teaching, teaching people how to live as followers of Christ, as we also read in verse 35, teaching in their synagogues. As we read the Gospels, a great deal of the, the content there is Jesus teaching people how to live, how to forgive, how to love one another, uh, teaching people, teaching us how to live as his followers. Third component we see is meeting the needs of the afflicted. Jesus went about multiplying food for the hungry, healing the sick, casting out demons, meeting the needs of the afflicted. And then fourth, we see this in this short passage, his motivation. Jesus was compelled by compassionate love for the people. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Think about this for a moment. Jesus wasn't out doing this, trying to build the biggest possible organization he could build. He was moved by his compassion for people. He looked out and saw the hurting crowds, and he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And the compassion within moved him to the meeting of their needs. The Apostle Paul, describing his own ministry, said, it's the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels us. And that should be the same for you and me. We don't go out into this community just because we have a sense of duty, sense of obligation. That's what good Christians do. No. The Holy Spirit can put the same compassion in us that was in Christ so that when we see hurting people, we are moved to do what we can to meet their needs as well. And then notice what happens next in verse 37. <clears throat> Jesus sends his followers. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Jesus sees all these people, and he sees the abundance of need and says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There are not enough people responding to the Father's call to go out and meet all of these needs. So he says, pray earnestly. Ministry begins with prayer. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send to send laborers into his harvest. And so Jesus sends his own followers. We continue to read in Matthew chapter 10. 
He called his 12, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. These 12 Jesus sent. He sent them out. We read later in that chapter, he says, I'm sending you, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, these are the 12 apostles, so we could rightly say, well, they were special. They were unique. Jesus sent them, but surely we're not sent in the same way they were sent. Let's look for a moment at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the same thing. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 72 more go, but Jesus says that's not enough. Pray for sending. Pray for sent people. Pray for the Lord to send more people into his harvest. Follower of Jesus is a sent person. And so I'd like to reflect on that for just a moment. What it means for you and me uh, as Christians, if you have embraced Jesus and Savior, as Savior and Lord, what it means for you to embrace your identity in life as a person who's actually sent, sent by Jesus into the harvest. You find a little outline of our message if it's helpful to follow along on the back of your, your worship guide today. When we're sent out by the Lord, we're sent out, first of all, with the authority, the authority of a sender. We don't go into the world. We don't go into our local ministries. We don't serve at the Samaritan Inn or the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission or Solus Christus or the Clemens Food Pantry just to make us feel better about ourselves. We have a mandate, a calling from the creator of all things, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who told his disciples after his resurrection, before he ascended back into heaven, all authority, first of all, is given to me. And it is under this authority that he sends them. So when you go out into the community, when you take his love and his truth to your neighborhood, to your coworkers, to serve in a local mission, you're going under a mandate from Jesus. You're going in his authority. Furthermore, we go with the instruction of the sender. And he gives this guidance. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. If Jesus had merely said, go and make disciples, tell them I died for their sins and rose from the dead and through faith in me they can be saved. And that's critically important. That is the message of first importance. That's the gospel. But that's not all we're to do. The mandate is far greater than making converts. The mandate is to make disciples. In the New Testament, the word disciple simply means a learner, one who's learning to be like the master. In this case, Jesus being the master. And we're to teach them to observe all that he's commanded. That's a huge, huge order, that degree of teaching. Jesus knows that if we make disciples, if we take a person who comes to faith and teach them that which we have been taught by Christ, they'll in turn go out and reach others. We're sent by the Lord under his authority, with his instruction, 
And some of you do this. Many of you do this, by the way. Some of you, I know, are teaching and leading Bible studies uh, for the, the recovering women at Solus Christus. I know regularly I hear of you going there teaching God's Word. Thank you for doing that. Some of you do this in the Forsyth Jail and Prison Ministry. You go and help lead worship services, or maybe you've been to the downtown detention center to lead Bible studies. Thank you. Thank you for doing this as you're sent out by our church. We're sent with his authority. We're sent with his instruction. Thirdly, we're sent with the power of the sender as well. In Luke's gospel, we find Jesus giving this instruction that we don't read in, in Matthew 28. Jesus says in giving the mandate to go, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What was he talking about? He was telling his disciples not to start going until they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We read further in the first chapter of the book of Acts a bit more uh, detail about what resulted from this promise. I'm reading from Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. You'll see verse 8 on the screen. While staying with them, he, that is Christ, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is the key. You'll receive power to do these things. You and I don't go to serve at the Samaritan Inn or the Winston-Salem Street School or the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission in our own power and strength and ability. A number of you, I know, have been with groups from our church to the uh, Cherry Street Prison or maybe you've been downtown to the Versailles Detention Center. And I remember the first time I ever went down to the Versailles Detention Center downtown you know, you're searched by armed guards and you go through all the security and you're taken down to the various floors. And it's a little bit intimidating, frankly, in this huge facility which could house 800 to 1,000 inmates downtown. But how wonderful it is to know we don't go in our own strength. We go in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't try to do any of this in our own power. The Lord would rather we didn't try to do it in our own strength. That's why I said, wait, wait. Wait on the promise of my Father until you're clothed with power from on high. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. When we're sent by God, we're sent with the authority of the ascender, the authority of the sender, the instruction of the sender, the power of the sender, and then finally, the presence of the sender. Jesus says this when he concludes the commission in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28 and 20. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you choose to be involved in ministry at the Versailles Jail and Prison Ministries, and maybe you'd even go to the training that will be held this afternoon, and then you're, you're, you're approved to go for the whole coming year if you do that. Maybe you are going to Solus Christus or you're, you're stocking shelves at the uh, Clemens Food Pantry. You're serving meals at the Winston-Salem Street School. You go with the presence of Christ. Would you go in there to serve the hurting people? 
you go in the presence of Christ. It's not just serving local ministries. When you go into your high school as a follower of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, you take the presence of Christ into your classroom, onto your lacrosse team or your soccer team, wherever you're going. Take the presence of Jesus with you. Followers of Jesus are sent people, sent with his authority, sent with his instruction, sent with his power, sent with his presence. So how did this sending work out in the, in the early Christian church? Right after Jesus gave this mandate, what happened with the early Christians? As they waited on this power, what, what happened for them? Well, I could take just a quick look at the book of Acts before we close, because Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts, giving us a history of what happened after Jesus ascended back into heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people. The pattern of early Christians, their pattern for ministry is incredibly important for us to understand and to follow. And the pattern of early Christians included first, I think, prayer. Jesus had said to his disciples before he ascended to heaven in the Gospel of Luke, he said, wait for the promise of my, my Father which you've heard from me. This was the promise of the Holy Spirit. So what did they do? They waited. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told them again, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And so they're waiting. They're waiting in an upper room. And what were they doing? Were they just passively passing the time? No. For them, waiting was waiting in expectation and prayer. These with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Many people in this upper room, not just the apostles, men and women, waiting on the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. They're empowered. They begin spreading the gospel. Peter preaches. New converts come. 3,000 people after the day of Pentecost come to faith. So what did they do? Did they stop praying? No, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find... I think, based on my count, if it's correct, about 21 references to prayer or prayers in the book of Acts is part of the lifeblood of the early Christian church, one of the ways that they stayed in close communion with the Holy Spirit who was empowering them for ministry. We're not asking you today to, to just quickly sign up and say, the church says, go out in the world and serve a local ministry. I'm picking one, I'm doing it. Before you do that, Spend a little time in prayer. Seek the Lord. Ask him to put in your heart what he wants you to do. Maybe you'll begin to sense some compassion in your heart for the students at the Winston-Salem Street School or the inmates on Cherry Street or downtown at the Versailles Detention Center at the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission, Solus Christus, one of these wonderful ministries. Ask the Lord where he wants you to be. Pray. Secondly, we see this pattern in the early Christians, care for the poor and needy. Acts 2 and verse 45 tells us there weren't needy people among them because they were actually selling their possessions and distributing to the people in need. Throughout the book of Acts, we see a pattern of the early Christians meeting the needs of the poor. They hear there's a famine in some other area, so they take up a collection and they send the Apostle Paul and others with resources to provide food for people. It's not only seen in the book of Acts, it's seen in the whole Bible. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, God called his people to have compassion for the poor. The Old Testament prophets often uh, rebuked the Israelites when they disregarded the poor. And the writer of Proverbs says, he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. Jesus and his disciples had a money bag. It was actually maintained by Judas Iscariot, of all people, who had the least integrity of the disciples. But it's interesting as you read in John chapter 13, when Jesus predicted his betrayal, he looked at Judas and he said, what you do, do quickly. And he left with the money bag. And the others, we read in John chapter 13 that the other disciples, I think it's verse 29, said that they assumed he was either going to buy something for the feast or give something to the poor. Because apparently, though Jesus' disciples did not appear to have much wealth, giving to the poor seemed to have been a regular part of their ministry. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians talks about his ministry. And in chapter 2, he recounts how he met the well-known apostles, pillars of the church, Peter, James, and John. Here they meet this former persecutor, Paul the Apostle. And many people were initially afraid of Paul, but here they meet him. He's now converted, and they, they talk together. And Paul says, Peter, James, and John, pillars of the church, they gave me the right hand of, of fellowship. And uh, they were sent to the Jews, but we were going to go the, to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles. And here's the only instruction they gave him. They only said that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was zealous to do. This was just part of it for early Christians. You think about the poor. You remember the poor. The pattern of the early believers, prayer, care for the poor and needy, and then thirdly, proclaiming the gospel. And when I say proclaiming the gospel, I'm not talking about the apostles doing all the preaching or the deacons or the elders, every believer. Note what we read in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 immediately follows the death of Stephen, the first martyr whose record we have in the book of Acts. He was a deacon, preached the gospel, stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus, <coughs> because of his preaching. And we read this right after uh, Stephen is killed, that Saul, who would later be known as the Apostle Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Samaria, Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now notice that real carefully. Everybody was scattered except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, remember that's everybody except the apostles, went about preaching the word. And the Greek word translated here could, the translated with the words preaching the word is the word that we could just as easily translate evangelizing. Here's the point. Everyone except the apostles went everywhere evangelizing. 
everybody except the apostles. Now, the apostles were evangelizing in Jerusalem, sure, but everybody went everywhere else, scattered everywhere else. It's as if God himself, after this persecution, was sending them, was scattering them out, and they all went evangelizing. It's a reminder that every believer has this sent identity. Not just apostles, not just missionaries, not just pastors, every believer. I would urge you to embrace your identity as you go to, go to work tomorrow, as you go through your neighborhood this week. You're sent. You're sent with the authority of the, ascend, of the sender and the instruction and the power and the presence of the sender. Years ago, a man named Michael Green wrote a book that really became somewhat of a classic called Evangelism in the Early Church, and it was a study of evangelism, of course, not just in the book of Acts, but the early years after the, the uh, biblical accounts. And it's a, a, a great book. He writes these words. One of the most striking features in evangelism in the early days was the people who engaged in it. Communicating the faith was not regarded as the preserve and by the word preserve, I think he means the exclusive domain uh, of the very zealous or of the officially designated evangelist. The ordinary people of the church saw it as their job. Christianity was supremely a lay movement spread by informal missionaries. In other words, it wasn't just preachers, teachers, everybody. It's a lay movement. That's the most one of the most striking features, he says, of evangelism in the early years of the Christian faith. Everybody going everywhere evangelizing into their schools. You students can reach people in your schools far better than anybody, any of us can, obviously. Where's God called you? Why has he put you where you work? Why has he put you where you live? Why has he put you in the family in which he's placed you? Why does he put you in a family where there's so many people who don't yet know him? Start with intercessory prayer. Start with prayer. As we draw to a close this morning, three questions by way of personal application. First, have I embraced the gospel? The first call is not to go, but to come. Jesus has come to me, all of you who labor heavy burden. I will give you rest. Included in that call, most importantly, is the call to salvation, to embrace the fact that he paid for your sins. And he calls you simply to respond <clears throat> in faith and receive who he is and what he's done for you. And then having responded to the gospel, have I embraced my calling as a sent person? A person who's sent with Jesus' authority, instruction, power, his presence. And then finally, what gifts and abilities has the Lord given me that can be used to help others spread the gospel? Maybe preparing lunches at the Winston-Salem Street School would be the perfect place to start. Maybe building beds at City Light Ministry. Maybe helping low-income women at Pivot Ministry with job readiness or mentoring and life skills. As Wes said, get one of these field guides uh, local outreach field guides today. 
And uh, I love the verse that was put on back of this. Use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. God's given you a gift. Use it for his glory as a sent person. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you not only forgive our sins, provide us a place in eternity with you, but you give us roles in the family business, the business of spreading the gospel. And you send us into this world in your authority and instruction with your presence and power. May we be found faithful, Lord, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.